Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on DubLab. And today I'm joined by philosopher, prophet, and professor of the environment, Timothy Morton. Since 2012, Tim has held the chair in English at Rice University, one of America's leading universities. Activating and astute in equal measure, Tim's books and papers ask us to give up the idea that we can control the planet, along with the notion that we are above other beings. And this is just the tip of a melting iceberg. Tim's work has attracted superfans from experimental pioneer Bjork through to Serpentine's wonderfully eccentric curator, Hans Ulrich. So, Tim, that was just the briefest of introductions about your incredible work. But thank you so much for joining us. Oh, gosh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. And um, Melting Iceberg, that's a great byline. I'm going to use that. So you're, you're talking to us from um, Houston, Texas? Mm-hmm. And you're, yes. You're in your car? I'm in my car. I'm hiding from my cat, who's very efficient at making noises that make me get out of the car. And um, I'm in swampy Houston. It's the fourth or the third, depending how you count it, um, biggest city in the USA. It's possibly the most desegregated big city in the USA that no one knows. And um, that doesn't say much about it or for it because segregation is real. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like it's a love it or hate it city. And perversely, strangely, I, I love it. And you've been there for now for how many years? Oh my goodness, this is my ninth year. And when I say numbers really highlight that, I sort of remember that I'm 52 and I go, oh my God. But I suppose we're going to be remembering right now because some of the music I chose, in fact, pretty much all of it is from the 1980s. <laughs> um, and so we connected quite serendipitously. Um, I know Hans, you know Hans, and mm. um, he's a wonderful, um, strange, delightful human being. Mm -hmm. And so I, I sort of found out about you via Hans's appreciation. Oh. Um, and apparently you're the only one in all the times that he's been interviewing artists um, and philosophers and people you're the only one who's made him so emotional that he actually started crying. Is that, is that true? That's tr absolutely true. And what's strange about it is that I was, I was crying as well. I started crying and then he started crying. And what made you both cry? Um, well, this is the... Th well, well, BT, I've cried about a lot of things since then. Um, <laughs> it was 2014 and um, he's the director of the Serpentine, right, in London. And yeah, he's, he's a fantastic get-together of people. He must have an incredible radar in that head of his that looks not unlike the Nimrod spy plane, if you remember that thing, with a great big huge sort of head, sort of swollen with radar equipment in it. And he's just fantastic. He's a fantastic human being. And I, um, I'm very, very glad that I met him. And yeah, we sometime in the middle of this hour-long interview about all the thoughts in my in my head. And I suppose the reason why he was interviewing me, because I just published the book Hyper Objects, um, I started crying and well, well it was for his one of his dues at the Serpentine that at that moment was called the Extinction Marathon and so this is a topic you know that I bluff my way through when I talk about it in lectures um, and I usually say you know but you know if, if, if I was really in my feelings right now I'd be curled up in the fetal position crying and it's not 
um, a lie because in 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 the, uh, just the beginning of last year, you know, 2020, the the year in which everything happened, one thing that happened to me is that I started to learn how to grieve properly, and very quickly, I started to experience what now psychotherapists call the geo trauma about what's happening to planet earth and i just finally felt the feelings that i talk about all the time as if i'm insulated from them by like like a thin glass window like i can see them but i i'm not really feeling them and suddenly just feeling them and just thinking this part of my career i need to devote to modeling how to go through the feelings if only because you know that's probably more like a good role for my responsibility than just being right all the time and just sort of mansplaining everything and also maybe this can help in some way generation z that i'm very concerned about and quite a lot of generation z read my my books and i think the reason why is that i'm giving them things to hold on to and think about that aren't just to do with we're all going to die or there's you know we you, you should feel very evil and and stupid about about ecology mm. the state of our planet mother earth um and tapping into that uh grief the grief around that and not to mention what has happened in the last year uh, collectively, I think there are so many reasons. It's amazing that we're not crying right now, Tim. Isn't it though? <laughs> yes. Yeah, isn't it though? Yeah, we 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 have a job to do. So I'm stammering a little bit, which is sort of like a little bit for me crying, like when I'm feeling a bit stressed and whatever. I I slightly stammer like Biden. Well, um, that is a sort of perfect a perfect way of really introducing the framing of this show, um, which is you know orange juice for the ears. The line is taken from a quote about the power of music by neurologist Oliver Sacks. And the quote is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, what does that quote mean to you, Tim? Mm. Um, it's a beautiful line. I love it. All my family immediate family are musicians my mum my dad my, my my two brothers and I'm sort of a musician although not professionally and, and, and in, a, in a way it's because I sort of avoided it because of the intensity of it um, for me if it's orange juice it's orange juice with quite a lot of acid in it because when I play a musical chord I get teleported to the outer moons of Saturn and then I'm useless to Generation Z. I can't actually say anything because I'm, however loud I shout, I'm on the outer moons of Saturn there and it takes me a long time to, to get back. Having said that, if I didn't actually have music in my life and if I didn't do a little bit of writing music myself, I, I would go crazy. And there's a lot of music in how I how I write. And the more I write or the more I talk, the more people start to feel the music and so and and for me that's a good thing because quite a lot of what i'm talking about is non-verbal and the reason why it's so as as sax would would which is kind of implying wide wide reaching or universal maybe not not a great word but it's sort of that feeling of people can connect to it because it's non-verbal and and yeah um i i i couldn't live without music um, the moving to tears quality is very important to me. The kind of the thing that in yoga is called the all-pervading wind, aka the 
the uh, the tingly feeling that everybody likes to describe that's going up your spine and uh, through your body and everything I can get that just from talking about certain kinds of music it's going to set me off and um, make me lose it and there's probably about a thousand different versions of this show that we could do with so many different types of music in it um, for instance um, the last movement of Steve Reich's Tehillim if I was to say a piece of music that I'd like the future to listen to, that might be one of them. And I'm, you know, Hallelujah, sung with disco chords. Um, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking that one. And what else is a tonic in your life? Mm. I have done a lot of therapy in my life. I'm a, I'm an avid fan of psychoanalysis, and apparently, I'm a fan of my therapist, who I've been with for almost 24 years, and he's he's actually retiring in July. And I finally got to ask him a couple of weeks ago, "Am I one of your longer-standing patients?" <laughs> I don't know why this didn't occur to me to ask him because I've spent like over six figures on him, so I must really like him. And has it had any effect? I don't have a clue. Maybe he really likes you, Tim. Maybe it's the other way around. It's perfectly possible. And now I'm willing slightly to admit that. And is that an individuation task fulfilled? And how are people hearing this when they're listening to it? Um, oh, the smugness. But also, I'm a, I'm a meditation student. I've studied Buddhism properly properly with teachers and stuff since the mid 90s and also like I've, I've done it for some time so now I have no idea what it is or or how it works but it's sort of part of me you know in the way that when you get really good at something it sort of disappears you know and and now I'm saying I'm really good at meditating as well so just kill me now okay what was the first song that imprinted on you well um the first one that imprinted on me, and um, this is where, you know, I had to go back and check, actually, when, when you were asking me these questions, what was the first thing that imprinted on me? And, you know, kind of chronologically speaking, it, it wasn't necessarily this one that was the very first one that grabbed me, but by a few months, this is the first one that really grabbed me. And um, it's actually a song by the band called The Buggles, called Living in the Plastic Age. Um, and it's sort of almost a novelty song, you know, in the way that the Buggles, um, run by, by Trevor Horn, who then became this huge producer in the 80s, um, did these sort of novelty type songs that would instantly go to number one. Um, I seem to recall Video Killed the Radio Star was huge. And, um, you know, I, I have a huge soft spot for kind of poppy, kitschy things. And it's kind of remarkable that you can say and do deep things in this kind of music. And what struck me mostly was the transition from the way the irritatingly comical novelty aspect of the of the verse works to the incredible, strange, oh my goodness, there's a there's a Welshman with a voice in the chorus singing about um, calling the heart police to put you under cardiac arrest. And just as as someone who grew up in a musical world, that is a wonderful moment. And the way in which the the chord structure works there is extremely strange and unusual. And I'm still sort of trying to figure it out. And it's a little bit like, you know, did did someone like Vaughan Williams decide to you know play in a disco? Because it's sort of advanced and amazing. And 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 um, what what more can I say about it? Perfect. Well, let's take a listen. Living in the Plastic Age by The Buggles. 
And that was Living in the Plastic Age by The Buggles, and that was the track that Tim Morton chose as the first song that really imprinted on on you. And how old were you when you first heard it? Um, I was all of 11 years old. So you're 11, and you hear that for the first time, and, and where are you, and what are you doing, and what is it making you feel? Well, you know what? Um, it helped me to get through my first couple of years at this prep school. I was a very poor scholarship boy at a very posh private school, St Paul's, and at that point it's it's prep school called Collet Court. And literally, I was growing up on bare floorboards, not the posh kind that have been polished and whatever, but the actually bare, dusty floorboards because my mum couldn't afford any carpet and with, like, broken gas fires in the bedrooms and stuff and having to get the underground and walk through the tube way in Hammersmith to go to school. And in fact, one of the tunes that got to me was also Cars by Gary Newman. That was quite high up on the list because of that. But um, something about that song, you see, when, when I think about it, BT, I visualise myself standing around trying not to get involved in the rugby into which I'd just been recruited because it was time for quote-unquote games, which is what they call it, right? Yep. Not PE. And, you know, games was the, 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 the sort of a euphemism, really. And um, I spent most of my time hiding in the toilets. And then I figured out that you could actually leave school most efficiently and no one would look like, like check you if you just walked quietly out of the front entrance. Um, so I hate to be giving people sociopathic advice here on this show, but um, if you want to do a crime, do it in front of people because they won't believe what's happening. I mean, this is what happened at the Capitol building in, on the 6th of January, right? Absolutely. And, and just to say, I walked out of the front gate of my school many a time. So. Hooray! <laughs> yeah! Yeah. Strike a blow for socialism. So, and, I, and, and I would walk down to the games workshop in Hammersmith and look at all the D&D stuff and just sort of luxuriate in the possibility of another world altogether. I know that you sort of pulled out the line when we were talking about this song and then we realised we were living in an ocean of plastic. Yeah, the longer I think about this tune, the more I think about that line in particular. And, you know, it, Trevor Horn is an interesting guy because he, he used a lot of the kind of postmodern energy but in a way that was actually quite romantic, like he was sort of appealing to a pre-industrial um, feeling there. And also when he became the lead singer of Yes, and another version of this show has got all these Yes songs in it that I decided didn't quite make the cut, but they almost did, you know. Um, so luckily you don't have to play 20-minute long sagas um, <laughs> in this thing, however that works, or even five minutes of them might be, you know, bad news for some people, yeah. But, you know, working-class people empowered by the culture of the 60s John Anderson is a farm boy from Accrington, and he's what a voice he's got. He's still a soprano, perfect, like natural soprano. He can really hit those notes, and he's like this surrealistic sort of choir boy on acid kind of a chap who's singing just amazing s s stuff, you know? So just to rewind a little bit, um, you were born in South, South London, Southwest London? That's the one. Um, in the late 60s to two concert violinists. So... I imagine there was a lot of music in the house growing up. Oh my God, so much music. Okay, so here's a funny story. 
My dad was the go-to session player for all the psychedelic and prog bands of the late 60s and early 70s. So he played with Procol Harum. He went on tour with Mike Oldfield. I mean, he did so many different things. He also played British listeners for the Wombles, but there's, that, this is too much to explain that he was on top of the pops dressed as Wellington Womble with a violin. <laughs> in the midst I mean that you know that, that 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 could have been another song that was almost there in the card and <laughs> so I would so I would wake up in the morning and I would hear him playing something and he was sort of improvising something and playing these fifths and he's a very influenced by Vaughan Williams again to mention Vaughan Williams so he's sort of playing a lot of sounds that sound like that and it wasn't until I was much older that I realized that that was him practicing the violin solo for Lark's Tongues in Aspic part one by King Crimson um, so anyone who wants to know what my dad sounds like or sounded like because he passed away in 2020 um, can listen to part one of Lark's Tongues in Aspic. And that's the thing for which I'm most proud of him now as, as a grown-up, as opposed to the Wombles. But what I think's interesting is obviously, you know, you chose a track that you heard um, when you were 11, uh, living in the plastic age, but you would have been around so much music, you know, from yeah. both... Your parents, and then I think your, you mentioned your brothers were also musicians. Um, was it important for you to really find your own music? It was. You know, um, I used to go, I used to sneak off to the HMV shop in Oxford Street and go into the basement because in the basement there was this whole collection of avant-garde stuff about which my dad was very, very disparaging. So I was like, I've got to have some of this. But I was so sort of under the thumb there that for weeks and months I would look at the at the records in the way that you used to do in that in that in those days and never buy them. Just holding them in my hand and looking at them was enough, you know. Paging Dr. Freud, can Dr. Freud... Oh, he's already come to this conversation, so we can forget that. He's already here. And so we've been talking about some of the early encounters of music for you growing up, but what is one of your first memories of really encountering the natural world? Oh, gosh. So when I was four years old, my mum got me a book published by UNESCO called SOS Save the Earth, and sadly everything that we know about what's happening to planet earth was in that book from 1972 which included postcards at the end that you could cut out and send to your local mp or the prime minister or whatever and i'd written in some of them i i i looked at it again last year i i, I got it back from my mum um who was sort of keeping it lovingly and um, had a little look at the back and I'd written these things I hadn't sent them because I'm like four or five years old I didn't know exactly what to do um, and maybe that was the first moment um, and then you know I went to the ecology exhibition at the Nat Natural History Museum and before it got taken over by BP and sort of greenwashed them it was a really really good exhibition that very very quickly convinced everybody that life forms are interconnected in this biosphere. Now, I'm not giving any examples of seeing mountains or, or looking at, at, at streams or whatever and the, 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 the sort of glory of wilderness, which is a little bit the key signature in which American people still, I'm afraid, I feel, unfortunately, talk about this as if, you know, wilderness was real. Like, there's no Native Americans and we're definitely not to do with white supremacy, both of which are complete fabrications, unfortunately. Um... And um, so, yeah, I, I, I did go to the Lake District when I was a kid and my, my, my grandparents on my dad's side had a house in Cumbria and he was born in Cockermouth in, 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 in Cumbria there. So I spent a lot of time there and um, 
enjoyed it and liked it but that was my my, my initial experience of why this is important was a highly highly well everything's mediated but this was obviously mediated because mm. it was a book and it was an exhibition in a museum and in addition to that, and that's already wonderfully in depth, but was there any particular... So, for example, from a very young age, I decided I wanted to take snails to school because I just loved mm. them so much. So I'd take them to school in my pockets. The poor snails were probably just not happy with this situation. <laughs> but <laughs> I, you know, that, that sense of interconnection that you talk about, which I couldn't agree with more um did you feel any of that just being out in the garden or you know digging up the soil oh. or, you know anything like that anything tangible oh for real snails for sure worms definitely darwin's favorite life form and uh, crocuses or or, or croaky or whatever you say about those things those things that may come out of bulbs and they pop up in the sort of easter time and they are absolute they fascinate me they just blow my mind and nasturtiums that look like they're from underwater somehow and they're perfectly sort of well not quite but they're sort of circular you know they're like these sort of discs amazing and um yeah in a funny way what I like to say to people is that we've we've got this actually. We know what this is. We don't have to be special people to be ecological. Just go to your local garden center. You've got the right you've got all the right feelings there, you know, apart from the, you know, wanting to buy chemicals that kill life forms in the lawn and stuff like that. I'm rather against lawns, BT. I I feel like I'm now I live in America, I'm surrounded by them like a like 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 the birds in Hitchcock's The Birds, only it's green and made of grass. You know? <laughs> Um, so just moving on a little bit, your you know your parents divorced in the late seventies. They did. What was that experience like for you? It was intense. It was so intense that actually I sort of forgot quite a lot of why it was not so great until a few years ago, and um, it was it was a very difficult year that year um, because it was also the year when I started going to a a new school. And, um, and yeah, sort of in my life, music has gotten me through these difficult transition moments, actually. And so having a sort of playlist in my head that included the Buggles and Gary Newman um, at that moment was very, very handy because music, you can sort of un unfurl it anywhere, right? And when I, when I move into a new house, and the first thing I always do is put some, put some music on. And what were you like as a kid? You know, I know you were were very studious, but um, well, firstly, was that something you were? Did you always feel like you were kind of study orientated? And then, how did you tend to spend your time? Studying was my survival mode, and sort of getting the A was very, very important to me. And so, definitely, from the outside, I would be seen as a sort of quite nerdy, bookwormy type of a person. And very much I was stuck in my work, especially in the later 70s and early 80s when I changed, when I changed schools. I was sort of becoming a bit delinquent in the other system, unfortunately, because I believe in the other system. Um, but at the time, they had a very standardized way of teaching people. And I would sort of embellish my homework a little bit, you know, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to make this my own. This is really important. So, for example... We were asked to write out some Robert Louis Stevenson poems. So I wrote a book of poems in the style of Robert Louis Stevenson with illustrations. This is not me showing off. I'm just t telling a story here. With illustrations. And I got detention because I'd done the wrong thing. 
And that was happening a lot to me, like getting detention for talking in class because the primary school teacher said, you can't talk and work at the same time. And I took this to be a hypothesis that needed to be proved rather than a, an order that you're not allowed to do it. And so I talked and worked and it was great and I got detention all the time. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I was sort of my best friends were the learning disability people. Um, because me and them were being similarly weirdly stigmatised by the by that system. And so moving on to the first album that really shaped who you are, had a big impact, what would that be? Well, when I, when I really think about it, it's actually got to be, as an album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, another Trevor Horn album. In fact, the more I, the more I thought about it, the more I realised this guy's had a very intense influence on me for good or bad and you know i i had heard laurie anderson who's now my very good friend and her amazing song oh superman and had been slayed by it i heard it on the john peel show very late at night when i was brushing my teeth and like this is the most frightening thing ever this must be the best work of art ever and just before that a few years before actually when i was listening to the buggles i was watching imagine because lenin was assassinated um, and that's another thing I could have put on. But what really blew my mind was in the video, another woman artist, Yoko Ono, and her piece, a little bit of a piece that she'd done that, that, that's above the front door of their mansion there in the video. And it says, this is not here. And it just got right inside me in the same way that the music does, this kind of cold truth icicle just going right inside. But the reason why it has to be the Frankie Goes to Hollywood is is very much to do with gender. I've only just recently figured out that I'm a non-binary gender person. And um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, this incredible sort of S&M-y gay disco music that somehow, thanks to Trevor Horn, got right to number one. Pretty much every single thing they did that year got to number one. They got banned by the BBC for their music covers and what they were doing. And so that also propelled them very high and we were banned from listening to them at school it was a thing we were told not to by the headmaster so you know i was already walking out of school to avoid doing games so listening to frankie goes to hollywood sounded like a very good idea to me and so this is like 70s prog hippies being dragooned into doing doing this crazy amazing piece of gay S&ME sort of disco about the value of pleasure and I talk about pleasure all the time in my stuff and I feel like as we're entering an ecological age we shouldn't make this be an age to do with efficiency because actually you know efficiency is the language of oil it's this precious toxic resource that you have to be very efficient with and efficiency is the language of the kind of capitalism thing that we've got going right now and very very efficiently the biosphere is being destroyed and so i feel like why to eat vegan food because it's delicious and because you're giving the other life forms the pleasure by letting them be alive and so what's wrong with this world is not that it's too much pleasure it's the not nearly enough that is the the perfect way of listening to we're not going to listen to the whole thing because that might almost take <laughs> us up to the end of the show but listening to part of welcome to the pleasure dome by frankie goes to hollywood from the record of the same title
And that was Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood um, from the record Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. And that was the album um, that, Tim, you chose because you feel like we need to have more pleasure in our lives. That needs to be a, a shift. And also for you, it was a record that really opened up um, a lot of things for you when you heard it. You talk about um, your gender, that the awareness around your gender. Just uh, get, tell us a little bit more about how old you were when you first heard that and how it unlocked some of these doors. Yeah, um, 14. So I was between age, between age 15 and 16. And um, here were these people from sort of gay disco world saying, you can have more pleasure. And a few years later, of course... Acid House started. Now, for those of you people who don't know about this, this is like maybe the last time there was this global movement of younger people up until Extinction Rebellion, which I'm really happy exists. And um, so there was this feeling in the air. And I was definitely part of that. Um, and, you know, had the luxury or whatever that is of experiencing it over and over again as I went west through the USA, because when I arrived in New York City, it was just hitting in New York City. To me, dancing and, you know, being in that situation is where I've learned a lot of things. Um, and those things are, are part of what I write about and how I write. And so it's it's actually literally not like I went camping and I had this blinding insight, although I do love going camping sometimes, it's that I went to these discos and was like, wow, this. I mean, the first one I went to, Prince showed up and no one cared. He just sort of showed up. It's like, oh, look, that's Prince. And then Philip Glass showed up the next week and just sort of stood in the middle of the floor there with all the beats going on and was like, I understand, you know, and just sort of left. So I read in the paper a few days later, you know, that he'd shown up to this club in the middle of London that I used to go to. But no one cared. It wasn't until many years later that the whole sort of superstar DJ thing happened and these things became extremely, extremely commercialized. And you had to wear proper sort of uniform and I kept getting kicked out of clubs because I wasn't because because I didn't look right to the bouncers because I was just wearing normal clothes you know what I love is you you're getting well not kicked out of school you're getting penalized at school because you know you're not necessarily learning or your way of learning is not the, the standardized approach but then you're getting kicked out of discos <laughs> for being too yeah. straight um yeah. so let's just talk about the education side a bit more you got a top scholarship at st paul's school in london five years in a row was it yeah well it, it they, they gave it to me for the duration for doing well on this exam before i went in it was one of the few days in my life that i actually somehow knew how to do math as they say over here and it was because my grandfather drove me to the exam and he said something that somehow transmitted how to do math in into me which was if you can put it into symbols then you know how to how to do the math and something went click 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 in my head and I just was able to do that for that one or two hours of that maths exam and so I got this scholarship which was very handy because it meant I didn't even have to pay for school dinners as they call them over there and um you know because my mum was had like 10 pounds a week to bring up three boys in the in the in the 80s so yeah um i that that happened and then i sort of somehow managed to get into oxford although i'm the sort of person that everyone like like either you're going to give me an a or you're going to give me a d when i do my essay because it's really weird looking and you don't 
get it and this has been the thing all my life and now I'm fine with it I sort of own it and I'm fine with it because I've had some slight success with it but in in that moment it was very tough because I almost didn't get in apart from the fact that my teacher had said this guy's really good to one of the people who was doing the 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 interview you know and you studied English and your PhD thesis on romanticism um, was about the vegetarianism of Percy and Mary Shelley. Yeah, it was. Why did you specifically choose that theme to explore or that um, part of their lives? Well, you know, I'm the sort of person who who comes out as a perceiver on the Myers-Briggs test. And so I need to do things over and over again. And then I need to look at them and go, what exactly am I doing? Because <laughs> I do things quite intuitive. And I was just writing about sort of everything to do with Shelley and in a little bit to do with science. And it was mostly because I didn't understand this guy. You know, like, who is it? Like, I understand Blake. But writing about Blake would be like, reciting the phone book to me it would there'd be no grip because i would understand it so well unquote that i wouldn't be able to say anything about it yeah so there's something about the shelley that was interesting to me and the reason why i did the vegetarianism is because i had a good 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 advisor or reader or whatever you want to call them paul hamilton and he sat me down in my first year of my phd and he said you want to do that bit that thing there that you did in like one section of one chapter of this huge big thing you're doing on the vegetarianism that is interesting and you need to do that and so I was like okay you're you're my advisor I'm going to do it so that's the reason and and that often happens to me I just sort of follow my nose really and then I sort of think about what I'm doing afterwards you know it's sort of like for me feelings are where it's at like 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 feelings are from the future aren't they because feelings are sort of like thoughts and ideas but you don't know what they are yet right whereas ideas and thoughts are just like the receipt that sort of pops out of the cash register of a thinking or feeling process right and so to write stuff you've actually got to be and i'm this is not on telly so i can't be showing you that i'm pointing to my chest but i am when i when i talk about it and that's where all the stuff comes from and 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 literally also the thinking process i i say to my students you know once they've qualified to do a phd for heaven's sake don't have any ideas and they think i'm being silly or joking or they think i'm trying to somehow trick them into doing a good good job and motivate them but i'm not i'm literally saying trying to have an idea is exactly what blocks you and what you've got to do is this sort of kitchen sink sort of working class level of i'm just going to try to write a really great sentence and i don't care if that sentence is just the word banana and sort of just like stay at that level of like like the laundry folding level of life is where all the goodness is the earth you know the earth level when did you have the realization that academic success was actually secondary to this other thing that you're talking about which is just uh yeah being alive for real um that's actually another thing that somewhat sadly has only occurred to me properly properly in the last few years the difference between alive and surviving and i think the whole world especially the western world needs to learn this a little bit because like so-called civilization has been in survival mode since 10,000 BC. There was this slight global warming and all the animals and crops and stuff went somewhere and people thought, sort of started thinking, well, if we store things and plan a little bit, things will be better. Oh, I know, let's live in these granary-like things. We'll call them houses and then we'll call it a city, like a huge big group of these things with a wall around it. And then we'll call it nature, the stuff that's sort of outside that. And this is where all the class division and the patriarchy, I'm not kidding, and the races 
Buddhism all come from that, right? And so it's from survival mode, which is like, I don't care who gets in the way, I just need to live. And I fully respect that feeling because I've, I've had it, I'm a survivor person. And I understand it, but it's very toxic for you and in the end other people as well. And alive, alive isn't that. Alive is a kind of shaky, trembly feeling. And in a way, it's in between two different kinds of dying. It's not the opposite of dying. It's in between not existing at all, which is one kind of dying when you just sort of disappear into the soil like like the john lennon idea like i'd rather fade away than burn out and then there's the neil young version which is the survival mode which is i'd, I'd rather burn out than fade away just doing the same thing over and over and over again and, and damn the torpedoes or the amazon rainforest or whatever it is that you're damning there and yeah being alive and it's the feeling of of what they used to call english literature um, as opposed to being powerful, which is the feeling of Latin and Greek, aka classics. And all my classics teachers are like, you're really good, you've got to do this because it'll give you the power. And the English teachers are like, well, what we're doing is about the feeling called alive. And I just intuitively was like, I want to do that one. I don't need the power in my life. I need this other thing. But it's taken me forever to realize that that feeling is a is real and it's not to do with some kind of vitalistic masculine sort of essentialist concept of, of 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 biology or whatever people might have thought it was to do with it's actually the same feeling that you get in the theory class it's sort of like i wonder what this is is this real i don't know yet i'm not sure that sort of feeling it's also the feeling that that, that you get when you meditate yeah you sort of start feeling a little bit sort of soft and rubbery and sort of naked and it's okay so you ended up moving to North California, where you were the professor of literature and the environment, which I think is wonderful. Um, was that environment conducive to what you wanted to be focusing on and writing about at the time? It really, really was. So I sort of am Californian because I spent 10 years of my life there. So I feel like I can talk about it both positively and negatively. The one reason that it was good is because my sort of ersatz father figure, this mentor of mine, David Simpson, had moved there, actually from his job in Boulder, which I had gone to before that. And, um, you know, California, what can I say? It was so beautiful in all kinds of ways and so orderly where I was living. Um, in Davis, in between Sacramento and San Francisco there, in where they do all the sort of kiwi fruit and the nut trees and stuff like that. Um, it was so perfect in a way that whenever I felt upset, I would always blame myself. Um, and that's when I began to realize that I actually suffered from, from depression and started getting properly sorted out with it. Not just the therapy, I mean, but actually taking medicine for it, which I highly recommend if you need to. I'm very out about mental health stuff. There's this weird thing where intellectuals are supposed to be like Olympic athletes and not be taken... Like, you had that idea, but you were taking a chemical when you had it, so it can't be right. There's still a little bit of a residuum thing of that. And I feel like, well, if I didn't take the... Whatever it is, Lexapro or the well, the Wellbutrin, I'd be, I'd, I might have killed myself by now. And I'm being very sincere about that. And I'm, I like to talk about these things because I think it's helpful and sort of diffuses something you know um i just sort of wrote things and i realized that i needed to tell people what i really thought as opposed to trying to look clever or correct which is what you think you need to do to get the a and also to get the job in this medieval institution called a university because universities are always about authority and being right um as opposed to 
being interesting and bringing people along with you, which is actually more sophisticated, I feel. It's upper level. And so I had this little post-it note on my computer when I was writing this book called Ecology Without Nature, and it just said, just tell people what you think. And so I thought, yeah, I'm going to do a title that'll mean what the book actually says, so you don't even have to read the book. So I thought, okay, Ecology Without Nature, that says it pretty clear. I'm going to say that. And um, I got into all kinds of trouble, actually, for saying it, because people believe in this word nature. I got these death threats, and I had to do police reports, and I, I got stalked, and it was sort of amazing. Um, and then I wrote what I consider to be the prequel to that book, also in California, called The Ecological Thought. And it's sort of like, where does your mind have to be in order to write this other thing? Because remember, I'm always about, like, retroactively thinking as opposed to going through this funny feeling process even though people th think of me as quite smart I tend not to do like I'm going to have ideas before I write before I write stuff or, or know stuff it's a bit like Han Solo like my my favorite piece of advice from any movie whatsoever is in The Force Awakens and Ray's going is that even possible about, you know, going into hyperspace through a hangar with this massive creature called a Rathtar sort of s sitting there on the Millennium Falcon? And Hans Solo says the immortal, this is words to live by, I feel. He says, I never ask myself that question until after I've done it. And that's very similar to me. It's like I, d I don't figure out why I'm doing it until after I've done it. You know, what the hell was that? So I wrote this book and, and, and Gary Snyder, I, I had Gary Snyder's job. Gary Snyder had just left. And I don't know Gary, but Gary was a friend of a friend, and Gary apparently said, this is a philosophy book, and that's the first time I ever thought of myself as a philosopher. I would never describe myself that way. It seems very arrogant to describe myself that way. Um, but it was nice that Snyder said it, because I felt like I could sort of relax and stop trying to be, I know all the right books in the library, and just be a little bit more sort of, I've got this way of thinking that might be helpful okay so i just want to i want to rewind just to one thing well how you started you were talking about ecology without nature which you wrote in 2007 um and saying that you would in that title give people everything they essentially needed to know about what you were talking about which then was deemed very controversial why why is that controversial what is the core sentiment of the book and why was that a controversy at the time yeah and of course when i think about it i've i've gone further and further in to talking to more and more people and so you know f f f from where i'm sitting ecology without nature is quite a cryptic title but what it really means is nature is a human being construct it's a human being idea that there are human beings and their cattle aka if you look in the dictionary Things that you own, called chattels, which used to include women in patriarchy, and capital, like factories and whatever, and cattle, like moo cows and sheep and stuff. So there's human beings and their cattle, mostly patriarchal men, and then there's nature, all the other stuff, and either it's ferocious or it's awe-inspiring or it's a weird bit of both, but basically it's over there somewhere. You know, uh, nature red in tooth and claw, like uh, Tennyson says, yeah? Um, and so this idea is really getting in the way 
of realizing that we're really, really interconnected with things. They're not over there. They're over here. You know, you've got these little crustaceans that live in your eyelids and you've got this bacterial microbiome and you're breathing oxygen because you have mitochondria which have their own DNA because they're from anaerobic bacteria that, that, that accidentally got swallowed by something else three billion years ago. And so everything's weirdly connected, right? And um, so that to me is ecology yeah like like understanding how things are connected together in the home that we live in so you talk about you were just talking about the interconnectedness of of life of us all and you know this idea that we are symbiotic beings in, entangled with these other symbiotic beings you can't really separate us out and i think that importance of interconnectedness interdependence symbiosis um, which is literally what we get from all the species all the ecosystems around us um, but do you feel like that is in direct conflict with human ego and our short-termist thinking which just seems to have got only more so with the rise of the digital age and and do you how do you think we can get over ourselves um and really see what not just allows us to survive and and as you said or be alive but actually really thrive as this source of inspiration wisdom some of the greatest secrets of of our universe really um what do you think is the main block well the mere fact that you can talk about these things means that there's somewhere inside of us right we know this it's just that these things have been alienated from us. It's a little bit like what one ancient philosopher called Ludwig Feuerbach says about religion. He's basically saying, you know, when, when, when in the Bible you say God is love, what that really is is an alienated way of saying love is God. If you just flip it around, you've got the real meaning. And it's sort of like we allow mostly in most sort of vanilla religion, it's a sort of white guy with a beard who mostly wants to kill you, who lives somewhere else, right? Um, to have all these cosmic powers, but really they're human being sort of ex-people superpowers, you know, I'm saying ex-people rather than ex-men, but basically. And um, I feel like since we know, you know, since somewhere in us we know, I think we can do it. I feel very positive. I think we've got the controls. We know, we know what this is and we know how to do it and we know how to find it. We just may need to do some pretty big shifts. And I think, you know, we're at this point where human beings and their cattle, unquote, having a pretty good time at the expense of everything else is going obviously nowhere. I mean, you know, clearly, if we're so happy with this idea, we can keep on letting it eat the biosphere alive until there's nothing left. And even then that and, and then even that sort of sorcerer's apprentice Mickey Mouse broom situation kind of isn't possible anymore. So the thing is, it's like we we know what this is. We do. It's just that. Um, we have been telling ourselves for a long time for all kinds of reasons that it's too big or it's too impossible or it would be too intense to make the transition you know um, I like the fact that you did bring up issues that are spiritual because I think we need a religion scale response to this this kind of thing that's the reason why the Catholic Church is right up there with Exxon as like a global thing we need planet scale feelings right and so i'm very encouraged actually by black lives matter and me too which to me are planet scale collective awareness showing up just in time not just to work with these very important issues they're working with but actually to 
to be and to model planet scale awareness above and beyond living in a country and so yeah I, f I think we've got this there's a certain sort of feeling that you can get that's like a sort of weirdly shimmery kind of feeling from the future you know and you don't even have words for it yet but you know it's there you know it's real it was like when i went to vote in november and we're all standing there and houston's a place where they're going to try to introduce a lot of voter suppression because of this because they freaked out because they're and i know why because it was the same feeling as in 1988 when i went to those clubs you're in this huge crowd of people and everyone's looking at each other like we're going to get this guy we're going to finish him now. We're going to finish this horrible fascism that we've been through. And everyone was having the same feeling. It was, you could feel it, you could touch it. You know, in the words of the immortal Mr. Fingers tune, can you feel it? You know, um, there is that, there is that possibility. The future isn't this dot on a Wikipedia line. It's the not yet speakable, not yet feelable aspect of, of, of things, the not yet quality, and that not yet quality is the possibility that things can be different at all, which according to quantum theory is true, because you can have genuinely random numbers if quantum theory is, is, is correct, which it appears to be. So therefore there can be a genuinely different future, and all the way through my entire sort of career I've been trying more and more loudly just to say that that another world is possible and we've got the power we shouldn't listen to people who are sort of like any sort of cynicism or doom merchant is a not correct and b they're sort of they're sort of telling a half truth in the form of a total lie that's really disempowering also it's really awareness and I feel like once you've become aware of something, it's almost impossible to become unaware of it. You can't backtrack. But to actually provoke or activate that awareness can be incredibly difficult. Um, and so, you know, in some in some ways, it's just how do we keep on, whether it is on a collective level or an individual level, with something that's so vast and intangible for so many people to... Um, absorb or relate to how do we keep on provoking greater awareness i truly believe that ending or seriously limiting or curtailing but let's just say ending patriarchy and white supremacy um, are foundational to any progressive ecological politics um, because this is how we're actually going to make that bridge to actually join the life forms that we are already connected to and there's a huge big argument here, which I'm happy to do with slides and, you know, PowerPoint and bulleted points and stuff. But just trust me on this. Um, seriously, Me Too and Black Lives Matter have showed up right at the beginning of this decade in which we've got 10 years, folks, to restrict global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And remember, Americans, that's pretty much just double the number. And that's the Fahrenheit number that you should be thinking about and worried about there. And... You know, it's going to be catastrophic, but not a disaster. There's a difference between a disaster and a catastrophe. In a disaster, there's no witnesses, if you see what I mean. In a catastrophe, at least, there are people going, oh my God, there's a catastrophe. You can do something about it. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, we, we know what this is. And we, we sort of intuitively know what this is, because we suffer from all kinds of ailments to do with our lack of connection to other life forms. And we keep having to tell ourselves funny things, like, for example, the word child, pretty much around the world at this point, means 
someone who's allowed to talk to a supposedly inanimate object like it's a person. You know, so I've still got my teddy bear, but as an adult, you're supposed to be someone who knows that that's just an inanimate object and you don't talk to them like that. But you see, I, it's why, why, you know, really, sort of honestly, why? Why does adult, or whatever, however you pronounce it, mean someone who's severed themselves from that possibility? You know, and every day in science, we're learning a lot more and more about how it's not just, you know, great apes or lemurs or whatever, but also it's even all like supposedly called animals i don't like that word and and plants right plants have sentience they don't have brains and nervous systems like we do but they experience fear that lovely smell of freshly mown grass that is the plant sort of fear armpit smell you know the butyric acid smell in the plant world is the beautiful you know freshly mown lawn smell funnily enough it's plants screaming so, you know, you don't have to follow crazy me all the way towards thinking, well, actually, assuming that, that everything is people is much safer in the long run than assuming everything is just like dead bits of something whirling around in a machine. But you can follow me some of the way and you can at least get as far as like fungi and and, and bacteria and, and be like, well, maybe intelligence isn't the special bonus prize for being highly evolved because there is no highly evolved because it's all random there's a judge in in new york state who's constantly sort of throwing back this idea that this particular chimpanzee should be liberated from this zoo because they're a person and the judge is like well you know bring me some more sophisticated points about the self-concept of this chimpanzee this isn't impressing me and the lawyers are influenced by scientists and the scientists of course because they don't know exactly how they come across are in belief mode and like please believe us please you know we've got these amazing facts that we found out these aren't good enough bring me some other ones and so i want to be in that courtroom as a philosopher, BT, and ask the dirty, kind of quick and dirty philosophy question, which would be, okay, Mr. Judge, you prove to me that you're intelligent now. You have 30 seconds, 29, 28, and I guarantee you that this judge will not be able to prove that they're conscious or intelligent in 30 seconds. No one can. Consciousness, intelligence, person, it means I think that you might as well be a person, always. AI means that a that i was always a if you see what i mean it's funny because i i always think of the natural world which i very much am consider myself a very grateful part of as possessing the ultimate intelligence and i think human beings you know we can get we can be clever but um that's a very different quality um yeah. so actually you know, you look, you look into these um, ecosystem species or everything you're describing, and there you see a wisdom and intelligence that you can't teach that is just um, in existence. And as kids, I think we come in with that. I mm. think actually so much of what we need to do as adults often is, is reclaim um, what we lost along the way. And maybe that's actually the whole timeline of humanity we need to just keep reclaiming what we were actually quite good at before we got in the way you know yeah because remember we are one of those life forms and whatever our intelligence is is an evolution product and you said it bt i mean it's in the word intelligence actually as opposed to clever um or intellect it's it's not in those words um intelligence it's the tail that wags the dog the ence at the end there it's a feeling yeah intelligence is a feeling it's a vibe wisdom is a feeling philosophy means two emotions love and wisdom yeah it's 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 emotion right and that's that's the future 
yeah in wisdom intelligence these are feelings and feelings are from the future and basically right now you know what's wrong with automation is not the ai like i'm just saying you know i might as well be one i can never check but what's wrong with it is the automation and what's automation it's basically the past is eating the future alive and you know the the possibility that, that, that things can be different and we have all of these algorithmic processes going on but the big daddy of them all is the economic system that we're in that is algorithmic and no matter how many fast those nanosecond trades get you know in new jersey where they're competing to have like i've got my server several millimeters closer to wall street than you do so i can do faster trades um, no matter how fast they get, they're never going to get up to now because a price is always a reflection of a past state of a commodity. And that's the thing that's eating the world alive right now. And if we don't like that, then we have every right to slightly tweak it, change it, destroy it, do whatever we want to do to live in a better world where we enjoy ourselves not at the expense of each other and other life forms. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so with that, beautiful um encapsulation what music would you send into space oh well that's super easy um 1988 was the year of of acid house it was also the year of love sexy by prince tantric guru to the generation x of which i am a member and it's prince and it's love sexy and it's the song i wish you heaven um which you know it's it, again it's a little bit what we were saying it's like he's literally saying inside of me and inside of you is this wondrous thing and it's not this alien thing over there it's actually i can give it to you have some right now so this feeling of just kind of giving all of yourself um and that's where the real tantric stuff actually is i'm saying this word so i might as well just sort of own it that i've been studying that form of buddhism um since the mid 90s and what it's really saying is that you know the the difference between you and a very enlightened being is extremely minimal it's the fact that you keep holding on to this idea that it's impossible to click into this other thing which is actually incredibly default to your existence it's not some special thing at all but you keep telling yourself oh that's I'm, you know, no that's just that's something weird wacky strange that's that's nothing to do with me and that's the reason why, you know, and also like it's it's seen as this kind of goal or this end point. But what if it was just this constantly sort of flickering thing all the way through your life that sometimes you're a Buddha and sometimes you're a bit crap and then you're a Buddha again and, you know, and so on and so on. Really what it means is uh, Tantra, it means thread, you know, it, it means con continuum. It means we live in a continuum where confusion and wisdom are really like... Uh, weirdly they're actually on a continuum with each other it's a very soothing message for people who've been traumatized for example they don't have to become different they don't have to reject anything they can just f feel whatever that texture is right now it could be a feeling of confusion or numb or paranoid or whatever the negative one is all the goodies are in there you don't have to d delete your emotion and that's what i hear when i hear this song so that's the one that's going into space well let's take a listen to i wish you heaven by prince
And that was I Wish You Heaven by Prince. And that was the song that Tim Morton would send into space um, because it's a little a little bit of heaven, right? Mm, they, well said. Um, it's, it's sort of, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got the controls, you know, we've got this. So many people like me make everybody, including themselves, feel stupid and evil all the time. Like, it's, this is impossible. It's too big. And look at all these data that you haven't learned yet, you know. And it's just like that is so disempowering. And we need a whole totally different way of talking about this to people that, that, that stops them from feeling like that. And to quote um, William Blake, who you know, I know we both love, um, and I'm, I'm quoting him to someone who probably knows every word he's ever written. But you know, I always, I've always really returned to that. Um, God resides in the human breast. You know, one of the end uh, parts of heaven and hell, and that that paragraph, but particularly that final line. You know, thus we forgot that all deity resides in the human breast. Um, it's like we have that power within us and we're always looking outside of ourselves for so many things. Um, and I think what you were talking about as well is, you know, what we think of being foreground is actually background and what we think of being background is actually foreground, you know. Yeah. So if it really were just the presence of life, you know, being alive in this moment, hey, we're still here, wow, you know, borrowed time, um, then that is really... That's really what it's about instead of some end goal or some judgments or attachments or all these mental constructs that we have um, that ultimately cut us off from that real source of of wisdom. And which, you know, you look into the natural world, you see um, examples of that absolute alignment with life that we're so bad at adopting or realizing. You, 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 you've done it, Beta. You've given me the tingles. And that's absolutely it. Well, I read something that you said, which I'd like you to unpack for us. Um, you said, I can get quite well known and then I can unleash this kind of um, hippie thing that I've been holding like a precious liquid carefully without spilling any for years and years and years. And now I'm going to pour it everywhere. So what is that precious liquid that you're esoterically referring to? The liquid is nothing other than just this feeling of alive right the, the the liquid is red i figured out that it was blood this year and um i happen to be privileged to see an echocardiogram being made of my daughter claire's heart because she has um a funny heart condition and she's 17 years old and i took her to the hospital and we we watched this incredible technician fee fee feeling as a way of seeing, doing this kind of ultrasound of the heart there. And it's just this pulsing, amazing, never still, always vibrating thing. And, you know, it's sort of from a far away, it goes gung, gung, gung. But when you look up close, it's constantly rippling with all this other energy. And it's why you have palpitations. It's like the default state is this amazing rippling thing. And that's that's alive, right? That's like nothing to do with being living rather than dead. That's to do with a kind of trembling movement. It's the feeling of movement, you know. I'm a big movement fan. Some philosophers don't want movement, um, and they want to sort of get rid of it. But I love it, and I want to find it everywhere, and I want to sort of install it deep in the structure of, of how things are, you know. And um, I think it's a deep fact about our world that things are moving all by themselves without needing to be mechanically pushed that's the basic good news of 
quantum theory that when you isolate something, it's not static. It's actually sort of shimmering, you know. And, you know, if I die in the next few minutes, you can put on my gravestone objects shimmer without mechanical input and that'll be another strange esoteric thing that nobody understands but to me that's one of the loveliest things about our world is that things are kind of shimmering all by themselves they do not need to be pushed to me the default of art is dancing and the default of dancing is called being alive right you just sort of get up out of bed and you brush your teeth and you go to the train station and that's a very boring dance but it's still a dance because it's movement right and then the default of being alive is called being asleep right you're just sort of there and and the, and the default would be the dreaming where your body's actually kind of paralyzed there and there's just this sort of stuff rippling through you that manifests as dreams and your heart's still working and your lungs are still working and all that stuff and to me that's the liquid yeah that's the liquid I've been sort of carrying one of my meditation teachers in the late 90s was being a little bit people were worried about him because he was striking out on his own a little bit in the Buddhist community in Boulder and um, a guy called Reggie Ray very interesting nice guy and um, he basically was interrogated by them and he basically said something very interesting that I will never forget and he said what can you give to people apart from yourself and he didn't mean your ego he meant all of you you know the the, the gazamkunst you that you you're not even aware of one percent of it because you have a certain image of yourself but actually there's this, all this other stuff right and um, really seriously what else do you have to give and I feel like I use the word soul now, you know, it's not this liquid or gas in a bottle, it's not this sort of smoke in a container that looks like the, the, the sort of ghosts on Scooby-Doo, you know, it's actually everything that you've done and everything that you've touched and everything that you've seen and everyone that you've related with, all that stuff which is like a shimmering heap of things that kind of weirdly overlaps with other people's stuff, all that stuff is your soul rather than you, your sense of you, there's this huge big wide meadow of, of something that we could call soul it's got all these different things in it like there's a stream and there's little voli creatures running around and there's like trees and where does it stop and start and we don't know but it's a meadow it's not a it's not a car park or a parking lot or whatever it's a meadow and and so it's got this distinct personality to it but it's not your ego what is the song you would have play at your memorial tim Oh, that's super easy. It's been the same since I first heard it, which must have been when I was 20 years old. Yeah, 1988 was when I first heard it. So when the, another great album came out, Bluebell Knoll by the Cocteau Twins. Liz Fraser, you know, small town in Scotland, genius, incredible voice. Oh, my goodness. And it's a song called Kiko Bath. Um, many Cocteau Twins songs would have passed this test, but that for me is the absolute ultimate one. And for me, it's the sort of sparkly core of the goth aesthetic. And that, for me, that's an interesting aesthetic because it's been going on for 200 years and it's got these very interesting, juicy, emotional chemicals in it that I think could be incredibly useful for us right now. Like imagine if scientists all came to work not wearing jeans and sneakers, but looking like Robert Smith out of The Cure. You know, would, wouldn't that be great? That's sort of like, that's much more to me being a scientist because it's like, how to feel a little bit like fascinated and in love with something but a little bit weirded out and grossed out at the same time is the science feeling it's like oh my god i love this fact but it's really weird kind of thing i love this sea lion mother who's loving on me and it's making me cry but it's pretty gross how she's throwing me these dead penguins <laughs> i heard this biologist on the radio sort of saying that yeah and so to me 
you know, it's made out of this feeling, which is an oscillation between enjoying and being disgusted. Yeah. And, you know, but, but, but what's it really made of? It's made out of the joy aspect. And so when you really get down inside that goth thing, you know, all, all the happy cure songs make me cry. It's that idea. And the Cocteau Twins have found that kind of chemical inside their original sound and they just sort of amplified and amplified until they get to this tune. Liz Fraser is singing unspeakable words and that's the clever thing. It's not just sound, it's words, it's almost meaning but it isn't. I th it may be from like bits of French magazines that she cut up and juxtaposed, I don't know, but whenever I teach French feminism I always play the Cocteau Twins and I always think of this music actually as extremely ecological in the best possible way it's not about rivers or bunny rabbits or whatever it's about something else but the the emotion inside it is purely the eco feeling i feel well let's take a listen to kiko buff by the cocktail twins that was Kiko Bath by the Cocteau Twins and that was the song that Tim would have play um, honouring the moment that you move out of this mortal realm and how do you how do you feel about that how do you feel about that idea of no longer physically being here obviously we've spoken quite a bit about your life um, in the Buddhist sort of philosophy and teachings how do you feel about the notion of death um, I do believe in reincarnation. I do have an ego. Death is going to be the biggest insult that ever happened to me, ever. I have no intention of dying. I hear it happens a lot to other people, but I have no intention of dying. I understand it's going to happen to me as well. And this is after several years of therapy in Buddhism, folks, so whatever, you know, WTF. I obviously spent, gave the money to the wrong people. Um, I have sleep apnea, and I actually, you know, before I got a CPAP, had about a hundred near-death experiences in a row so I know what's going to happen when I die that doesn't mean I'm in any way prepared for it it just means like yeah I know what's coming immediately after that that funny thing that happened and um, you know wh whatever happens next God knows because you know um, you don't remember anyway as the Dalai Lama said you know um, some uh, someone asked me about reincarnation He's like who who knows who cares you never remember it anyway what would you like to come back as Oh my goodness. You know, from the earliest age, I was a fan of Cheetah the Monkey. You know, I wanted to be Cheetah the Monkey. And so, look, very much I want to be some kind of ape. There's a little um, gif of a chimpanzee sliding backwards into this stream and he's sort of washing himself and he's all happy about falling into the stream. And that is absolutely me inside. And so I, I would like very much to come back as a bonobo or a chimpanzee somehow. Some, some kind of ape. Would, would be great okay got it um and we're just about to come to the end of the show um with you sharing your wonderful orange juice for the year selection so your last choice would be the album you'd pass on to the next generation um will you tell us what that would be and then there'll be a few more questions and then we're going to end with that music okay so my understanding of it right so so, so claire is 17 and simon is 12 
Right, and so those sort of Generation Z or whatever, that I never used to believe in this generation stuff. It's all a PR advertising thing. But sort of what, whoever that is who's next, they are deeply, deeply upset. And when they say the previous generations screwed us up, they don't just mean us. They mean the last 12,000 years. There is a huge weight on these people. And suddenly they're being asked to save the planet as well because we destroyed it for them. Like, what the hell is that? You know? And so I feel like people need all kinds of medicine. They need all kinds of healing. I know I do. And me and Arca met each other. They were producing the Volnikura album. And they said something absolutely true. They said, Björk is a healer. And I was like, yeah. That really, like, some people really have charisma. You know, it's not just a made-up thing. And there's a sort of, I'm going to say, one-meter radius sphere of healing energy around Björk. And everyone wants to be inside it. And so that didn't seem like a mistake when I listened to Homogenic and the song um, All Neon Like, which I actually used as a therapy tool. The song is basically Björk's going... I'm not going to leave until you're absolutely better. And when I say better, I mean you're shimmering, right? You're, you're glowing. You've got this aura, and I'm going to restore it for you. I'm going to reactivate it. And I wrote to her a couple of years about it. I said, you don't know this yet, but you actually, that saved my life. Because you were the, one of the very few people who actually broke through into my world at a certain point. And that, to me, is, is a song, and indeed an album, that, that future people need you know they need something like that Björk is a very good like illustration of how human beings can like manifest differently in the end you know what it's very very like irritating and takes a lot of work to pretend you're a confused upset person you know like that's actually harder work than just being like oh whatever fuck it I'm just going to dissolve into the carpet well and it's the win-win I think something that we we as human beings really struggle with comprehending is that idea that you can have situations, experiences where it is a win-win for everyone or everything or every species or every being. You know, everything is benefiting. Everything is feeling good um, from that relationship. You know, that symbiotic relationship. And so we're always thinking, oh, well, if they do well, we're going to get screwed or, you know, it's always an, it's that divisive energy and thinking and we miss out on realizing that actually everything can just be in harmony with everything else you know and as you said it's it takes more energy to sort of keep you know keep feeling sad and depressed and low sometimes than it does just to be at peace and and being at peace can even mean still feeling those emotions yes it can but you're not identifying with that anymore yes what we're really saying here is the word grief and basically that it's this is not something to be scared of it's huge that's the only trouble it's huge it's always bigger than you because it's a life scale it's more to do with your soul as it were than to do with your ego and um, America is a country made out of grief and America is also a country made out of the denial of grief just look 
at the continuation of, of, of slavery right up until now. And I don't mean human trafficking, which is real. I mean all these slavery artifacts like the Electoral College and police brutality. We're still living inside of it and everyone's got some grief, you know, that needs to be looked at and processed. And the thing about the grief is you don't actually get rid of it. The Kubler-Ross thing is not a sort of linear. It come, goes around and around and sort of twisty and spirally. But in the end, I've just learned this. So I'm just here to say you start to trust it because you know what grief is? Grief is your past trying to give your future a massage. Grief is like this inner body worker and grief is basically saying, look, I know this sounds really counterintuitive, but just lie down in the fetal position for a, for a while, okay? You don't know how long it's going to be for, and you're going to feel like you want to throw up, and I'm going to be, like, working with your abs from the inside, but after I've finished, something will happen, and then I'll come back and visit you at some point. And you sort of let it happen, and lo and behold, you know, and I phoned up my friend who's actually uh, was a hospice chaplain in San Francisco, and he basically very experienced with, with grief, and he said, drink lots of water. And I thought, oh, yeah, it is like having a massage, isn't it? You you got to sort of hydrate yourself. And I truly think since things can be different, then the future is already installed in the past, and grief is like a huge way in which the past can be lubricated so the future can come out. That doesn't mean you get rid of the grief. And like the the shaman culture of Burkina Faso, I, I once met Sabon Fusome, thanks to my friend who was the chaplain there, who was her assistant, and she was one of the shaman of that world, right? One of the shamans. And um, that whole world there is doing grief rituals all the time, right? You get married, grief ritual. You get separated, grief ritual. You have an argument, grief ritual, right? You forget to butter the toast, grief ritual. And the thing is, if you're having or doing all these grief rituals all the time, you've got no time to take over planet Earth. You've got no time to exploit other people. You've got to do these grief rituals, you know, and it's like, wouldn't that be much better if we spent all of our energy doing this huge thing? The other thing about grief is it's huge. It's huge. That one good reason why Biden is president is he is Captain Grief. And what I, what I think we all discovered in November is that in the rock, paper, scissors game of emotion, grief wraps the fear. The other side, I don't even like saying his name, was, is all, was and is all about fear. But guess what's bigger than fear? It's grief. And so grief is sort of like comedy. Like I love comedy because, funnily enough, comedy isn't about laughing. Comedy is about accepting all the emotions and leaving them be and not have them fight each other and reduce each other to each other. Comedy is like a lovely habitat in which all the emotions are allowed to live without deleting each other yeah it's much much deeper than tragedy i feel and grief isn't always about poor little me and crying like like you're saying grief contains everything um to go back to blake joy and woe are woven fine a clothing for the soul divine under every grief and pine runs a joy with silk and twine and i think that that idea of joy and woe um, actually are so close to one another mm. because yep. they make us alive and and they make us very present. And so almost to realize that those are great uh, sort of facilitators of presence, they become really beautiful things, beautiful experiences. Um, and so with that thread in mind, what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices, Tim? I'm going to say I'm going to say the word alive. That doesn't mean life as opposed to being dead or as opposed to being 
inanimate, so-called. That means this kind of constantly moving, quivering quality that we think is a basic fact about our universe that cannot be explained away. Yeah, they've tried. They've tried, these quantum physicists, to explain it away. It's called the hidden variables explanation for why this stuff happens, but they have eliminated every hidden variable, which basically means we are living in a shimmering world. You know, quantum theory is incredibly friendly and simple. It's really not anything woo-woo or fancy. It's basically saying existing means having a color and a flavor and a frequency and an amplitude. You know, there's, there's red energy and blue energy and green energy. There's no transparent energy. You know, patriarchy is basically like saying there's a transparent gender called man with a capital M, right? Or white supremacy is like there's a transparent race called white, which isn't even white, it's transparent. And so, yeah, I'm thinking alive is the, is the word that connects all these things together. Perfect. Tim, well, on that um, beautiful descriptive note, um, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your orange juice for the ears. We're just about to hear Bjork's uh, all neon-like from her record, Homogenic. Um, so just, Tim, thank you once again. It's been an honour and a pleasure, BT. Thank you so much. Not till you halo all over me I'll come over Not till it shimmers round your skull 